Nehemiah chapter 11. The whole chapter where we'll be done with the book here pretty quick. But uh, to be truthful, we'll not continue this pace through the remainder of the book. But there are some of these passages that that warrant being dealt with in large sections. I don't want to uh, to belabor a section of Scripture. One of the principles of the Scripture that we understand is that all Scripture is inspired by God and all is relevant, but not all, all portions of Scripture are equally relevant and important for the, for the exhortation, for the ministry, for the preaching of the Word of God. And so I'm not going to go through and try to determine how I should preach a, a message to you from example all the genealogies of scripture yes they are important they are of great value and that's a message in and of itself are these things important you know, why do we have these things and, and I could, could do that it may do it and, and someday yet to come but certainly will not be doing that today so as we look to Nehemiah chapter 1 chapter 11 I'm sorry verses 1 through 36 which is the entirety of the chapter just want to, for a moment here, take our thoughts back to where we have traveled so far in this book. Nehemiah chapters 1 through 10. And if we look back in, in one sense, for, the, for those of you who have, if it's a privilege to be here, <laughs> if at least you've, you've been here and you've heard and the messages and you've followed along, you've, you've tracked along here as we've gone through the book of Nehemiah, in some respects, you look back and say, this is something of a long road travel. And it is. A lot has taken place, a lot to be gleaned from, from the Scripture as we've studied it. But it's also, I think, important to note that the events of Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, through chapter 10, which we looked at last week, have all taken place in the time frame or the time period of nine to ten months. So that's how much time we've covered. And going from Nehemiah chapter 1 to where we are here in Nehemiah chapter 11. About nine to ten months from that very first occasion when Nehemiah received word from his brother of the affairs of things back in the homeland, back in Jerusalem. We remember the completion of the wall which took place in 52 days. From chapter 6, verse 15. We've experienced the covenant renewal of the people as with the completion of the wall. There was the response of the covenant renewal as they came to the seventh month of the year. There was the great celebration and observance of the things given to them in the law. Covenant renewal taking places taking place in chapters 8, 9, and 10. And what we find here as we come to chapter 11 is a return to a matter that was presented to us back in chapter 7. So very briefly, let's look back in chapter 7. And the issue that's brought before us by Nehemiah in chapter 7, verse 4, the city of Jerusalem was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not built. And then in verse chapter verse 5 of the same chapter, Then my God put into my heart to assemble the nobles. But what's he doing here? He began to develop a strategy which again he credits to the Spirit of God working in his heart and how to repopulate the city 
of Jerusalem. How are you going to get people to come back in here? And so we're resuming here in chapter 11 dealing with that issue. But something of the practical aspect here and bring it back to something of... So what's that got to do with anything that we are doing today? I want us to again consider the day. To consider the setting of Nehemiah and those people there. When they have come to this point of seeing the wall completed. And as we've talked about before, that all that is done, all the work that they can see, and the the grace of God being meted out to them and enabling to accomplish this great work. When all is done, all the work they've accomplished there, and yet they still look and have this reality before them, that this task completed, this work done, has nothing of its former glory. The temptation to be discouraged. Which I think can parallel in our own hearts, our own lives, that when we look at what we are desiring to accomplish and do for the glory of God and for the work of God, and sometimes that we can look in our own lives, whether it be individual or corporately as a church family, and we say, when all that is done, it's still not what I had hoped. What keeps me persevering? What keeps one going? So this morning, let's turn to Nehemiah chapter 11. And again, I'm not going to read all through this chapter. I'm going to actually focus on the first few verses. I'm going to direct you quickly through the chapter to some breakdowns here to help you grasp this chapter and how you might understand it. But again, not reading it in its entirety. Now, the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem. But the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine-tenths remained in the other cities. And the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. Now these are the heads of the provinces who lived in Jerusalem, but in the cities of Judah each lived on his own property in their cities. The Israelites, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. Some of the sons of Judah and some of the sons of Benjamin lived in Jerusalem. And then what you find from here on is something of a as a breaking out of the list that's given there in 3 and 4. These are the names of these particular people. These are the names of these priests and these Levites. These are the names of the sons of Benjamin and the sons of, of Judah that are given to us all through the rest of the chapter. So you come down to, uh, to verse 7, for example. These are the sons of Benjamin, which he's made reference to back in chapter or verse 4. Uh, verse 10, from the priest, again, which he's made reference to back in verse 3. Uh, Verse 15, now from the Levites, which again there's reference to back in verse 3. So what he's doing, what he gives to us in summary fashion in verses 3 and 4, he gives us in more detail a list of the specific people through the remainder of the chapter. So I'm not going to take the time simply to go through and read all these these names, but just to let you know that it is given to us in summary form, verses 3 and 4, extended form through the rest of the chapter. But our focus this morning actually is going to be on the first two verses. 
The leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city. Nine-tenths remained in the other cities, and the people blessed all the men who volunteered to live in Jerusalem. I wonder if anyone in here is like me, and you've ever just felt like quitting in any variety of capacities. You know, maybe you've taken on a task and you get so far in it and you just feel like, I think I'm just going to quit. I give up. Or a project. Maybe a game. You get so far and you say, I just think I want to quit. Especially if you're into a task. and the, There's always something about around the house that can be done. I'll always be tackled. And I'm one of these people, I'm always hesitant to take on some of these tasks because I'm not the greatest handyman and I know that. And so I have... The experience many times of taking on something and getting so far and realizing I'm in over my head. <laughs> or I've messed up something so badly here, I've got to bring someone else in to help. So some, sometimes I I quit of necessity or I think I should quit. And there are those occasions when I get to, I'm doing something and something arises. And you know you know the Murphy's Law of, of working around the house. It's never as easy as you think it's going to be. But there are those times when you get to a crisis and you've got to do something and you know you just kind of think, you are, I can do this, and you can fix it and you can get it done. But there's a lot of times you just feel like you want to quit. But sometimes you get so far along, you've invested so much in the way of time and energy and resources, you can't quit. There's been too much of an investment made. One of the things that uh, we try to teach our kids, and I told Alex a lot of times he'll be doing something with me and I, I said Alex what do you remember and he knows you don't quit you don't quit you never quit but here's the reality of my own personal experience I often quit spiritually I often quit believing God and get discouraged I often quit believing God and trusting that God's way is best and, and will yield to sin. We quit a lot, don't we? I often just quit trying. You get tired in the battle, and so I just want to quit. But we've been called to this task that we're involved in in, in the context of the church, in the context of the people of God. We've been called to that work by God. And how do we keep pressing on what are the perspectives that we need to keep before us so that we might persevere and this morning i want us to focus on three aspects three perspectives that we need to keep before us as we are involved in the work of the kingdom as we're involved in the work of the church and to let us know that what we're doing is worthwhile first of all we need to keep this perspective before us that the work that we're involved in as the people of god it is a holy work It's a holy work. Notice Nehemiah's language in reference to the city of Jerusalem. Verse 1, he says, now going down about halfway through the verse, they cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem. And here's the first time you see this in this this book. The holy city. The holy city. Now you see it again in verse 18. All the Levites in the holy city city. This is the first time that Nehemiah makes reference to the city of Jerusalem in this book as the holy city. 
See, there is much in the outside appearance of the city of Jerusalem that was that was not great and that was not glorious. The walls, they were not as large in area as they had previously been attained to. The walls were not built with the grandeur and the beauty they had once had. Built with the rubble that was that was there even from the from the previous glory. The city of Jerusalem. Largely in ruins after years of being un- unoccupied and disregarded. But as Nehemiah sees this city, he remembers this. This is still Jerusalem. This is still the city of God, the holy city. It's the city that David conquered in Second Samuel chapter 5. He conquered what's called the stronghold of Zion. That is Jerusalem. And it was, in fact, the city was not so much renamed, but it was nicknamed and known as the city of David. It became the city of the king's residence. It was also after David built his residence there that he decided, he determined that he wanted to build a place of permanent residence for, for God. And they had had the tabernacle for the place of worship. And he, he wanted to build a temple. And he purposed to do that. And he, if you remember the story, he decided he was going to build this, this great temple for the glory of God. And Nathan the prophet said, do all that's in your heart. And then the word of the Lord came back to Nathan and said, no, David is not going to build this temple. He's a man of bloodshed. I'm going to let his son. And so David did do all the work of preparing, getting what was necessary for the building of this temple. But he was not given the privilege of, of building this actual temple, the place of the worship of God that was to be in the city of Jerusalem. In fact, we know it was. Jerusalem was designated by God as the place of true worship of of God, where God would dwell in a a way that He did not dwell in other places. That there was a sense of the presence of God, the reality of the presence of God in the city of Jerusalem, in particular in the holy place. This was where God dwelt with His people in a unique fashion. It's the place where God's people were to meet with Him. It's the place where God's people were to bring their offerings and their sacrifices. It's the place where God's people were to come and to experience the atonement for their sin, to be reconciled to God. What a wonderful city. And so as Nehemiah thinks of the city of Jerusalem, this is the words that come to his lips. This is the holy city. The holy city. But you say the temple's been destroyed. Worship is not taking place. Is it still the holy city? I mean, worship here has not been like it was once before. Can you really say that this is still the holy city? Is the presence of God still in this place as it once was? Is it it just another city? Is it the holy city? I think we can view Nehemiah's expression here of Jerusalem as the holy city in three ways. First of all, it is an expression of remembrance. It's remembering that God is the one who established His throne in Jerusalem. That this was the place that God set aside to come and be worshipped. So it's remembering that. It's recalling that to mind and to the minds of the people. This is the holy city because God set it up to be so. But also we can see it as an expression of faith. It's an expression of believing God's promise that when He told the people that they would go into exile for these 70 years, but there would be a time of returning. They would return to their land. They would return to Jerusalem. They would return to the place of worship and experience the worship of God. So it's, a, it's an expression of faith, believing God in His promises. And even one of the post-exilic prophets, as we have 
given to us in the scriptures, the prophet Haggai. As they, he exhorts the people to, to begin to rebuild the temple as they had become focused upon their own homes. And I remember I even made reference to this even last week. Focus upon rebuilding their own homes. Say, well, it's not time. It's not time to, to rebuild the temple. We're not, we don't have the provision to do it. And, and God rebukes them for doing that. Haven't you noticed that your, that your land is not producing? Haven't you noticed that you're pouring yourself and your energy into things and they're not doing as they should? And if you don't make as a priority the place of worship and the restoration of worship, you're not going to have these things restored to you. You're going to continue to give and to give and be always needing. Make the, the work of faith. and faith, we're going to go and give, give ourselves to the rebuilding of the temple. So, Nehemiah, there's expression here of the, the holy city. This is an expression of faith. But it's also, thirdly, an expression of commitment. It's an expression of commitment. It's a commitment to recognize that a holy work and a holy place demands a holy people and a return to God's holy law to God's holy order of things. So it's an expression of remembering this is God's place. It's an expression of faith. God has promised that He would restore us to this place, but it is an expression of commitment because God is holy, you be holy. So He says Jerusalem is a holy city. It's a call that we will, it's a commitment that we will be a holy people. So as that we do not defile God's holy place, God's holy city. You know, it's a vision that we need to keep before us, dear saints, as we labor for the kingdom of God, as we labor as a church together to remember that the work of God's kingdom and the work of Christ's church, that this is a holy work. That the church is the visible manifestation of God's redemptive work. How does God reveal His redemptive work? Through the world. To the world. It's through His church. It's through His people. It's the church that shows forth the grace of God. It shows forth His goodness. It shows forth His mercy by being recipients of those things as we receive His grace and His goodness and His mercy, but it's also as we demonstrate and pour out grace and goodness and mercy to others and to one another. It's the church that is loved by Christ. Isn't it? He says, to what Paul says, as he exhorts husbands to love their wives. In what fashion? In the way that Christ has loved his church. And the church is a is a holy place. It's a holy work. We are the holy bride of Christ. Christ loved the church so much that he died to purchase her. And if it's a holy work, it requires a holy people, those committed to holy and righteous lives. Dear saints, we can be encouraged this morning as we labor for the kingdom of God. We labor for the kingdom of God in the context of this local body at Cornerstone Chapel. That the work that we're involved in, it is a holy work. If it is the true church, we can rest assured that God is in it. That the church has its life. The church has its, has its foundation and beginning from heaven itself. God is in it. It is holy. We're involved in a holy work. second thing we see here is it is an honorable work. It is an honorable work. 
Notice the means of repopulating the city of Jerusalem as given here. They cast lots, which is, it was the casting of these lots to, it was used in various places in scriptures. The closest thing we have akin to that would be the throwing of the dice. And we have places in Scripture where they used the casting of lots, for example, when they needed to find out where the sin in the camp was. And the lot fell upon Achan. Remember when they were going into Jericho? And, they, and Achan, he took some of the goods and they went to conquer Ai next and they were defeated. A much smaller place. The problem was that there was sin and so they cast the lots and it, and it, and it reduced the numbers and finally it fell upon Achan. And the word of Joshua, Achan, confess your sin and give glory to God. What have you done? So we see the places in Scripture. I'll note another place where there was a cast of the lot when King Saul had sent his army out into to warfare and he, he forbade any of those going out in the battle to have anything to eat whatsoever. And Jonathan, his son, wasn't there when it had taken place. And while they were going out, there was a place that he dipped down the end of his, of his sword or spear into some honey and ate and, he would, and it brightened his eyes. It gave him renewed strength. Well, Jonathan, or Saul and somehow found out about this, and so they cast the lots to find out who, who has broken the king's law, the king's order here. So the very first thing that he did was, all right, I'm going to put me and my son Jonathan on one side and put everybody else on the other side, and guess what? The lot said, it's one of you two. <laughs> they cast the lot again and exposed Jonathan, and Jonathan said, yes, I did. And Saul said, I'm going to, he'll be killed, but he was saved by the request of the other people, but it was by the casting of the lots. So the casting of lots is given to us in scriptures. Sometimes it was a matter of bringing truth to light, as in Achan's case. Sometimes it was used to discern what's the will of God here. What's the will of God? Uh, when Judas fell from his place in the book of Acts, and there was the, the need to, re, to replace him with someone, what did they do in the book of Acts? They cast the lots prayed and asked God to reveal. Had a couple of individuals cast lots and one was chosen. So they cast the lots here in verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem but the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem. What was the point here? What's going on? Well again, they're looking for people who would live in Jerusalem so they cast the lots and one out of ten would be chosen to by the lot to live to repopulate the city of Jerusalem. The casting of the lot here doesn't seem to have been something that was viewed as necessarily being binding. In other words, they're trying to pick who's going to live in the city. They cast the lots and it lands the, the lot lands on an individual. That individual will be approached say, Are you willing to do it? Rather than God has said, you're the one. You know, it wasn't there. It doesn't seem to have been binding in this situation, but they were looking for those. And so they cast the lots and they went to the ones and they, the lot falls on you. Are you willing to move to the city of Jerusalem? And so that seems to explain something of it. Verse 2, the people blessed all the men who volunteered. Those who, the lot fell on them, they said, yes, I'll go. I will go and, and live in the city of Jerusalem. So you have the commendation of those who accepted the lot. But we have something of an irony here, don't we? Here is Jerusalem, which Nehemiah speaks of. This is the holy city. This is the place of the worship of God. This is the place that God has set up and which God has promised to restore His manifest presence here. And yet because of the disrepair of this city, 
The honor is veiled. It's not something you see with the eyes, external eyes. No, these people could stand, they could look at the city of Jerusalem and say, I am missing something of the honor here. One of ten is chosen to live in Jerusalem. Nine out of ten are not. You know, such is so often with the case in the kingdom of God. Sometimes the honor of participation within God's kingdom, within Christ's church, the honor is hidden. The honor is veiled. Because sometimes it seems that spiritually that the work of God, the church, God's kingdom, is in such disrepair. Sometimes the honor is hidden. It is veiled by persecution. Sometimes the honor is veiled by just mere obscurity. It seems that this thing called Christianity and the church is such a small segment of our world. How can it be anything of any true relevance? So the honor is veiled and certainly to the eyes of those outside Christ by obscurity. The honor is veiled by scorn. Scorn of the world. Many times the honor is veiled simply by poverty. As we speak of our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world in the persecuted church, those who profess faith in Christ in cultures where you are forbidden to be Christians often thrust into absolute poverty. Where's the honor there? It's obscure. It's hidden, isn't it? It's there. But it's veiled. It's a veiled honor. Thanks be to God for those who have been made to see the beauty. Those who, like these in verse 2, those who volunteer to go and live into the city, If you're a child of God, that's you. We see it, don't we? You know the honor of being within the kingdom of God, of being within the the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there have been times that that honor has been veiled, but we see beyond, we see what an honor, what an honor these would say that I would be one, I would be one out of the ten that's, that's, that's brought in. They weren't standing in line to walk into Jerusalem, folks. But there were those who would see something of that honor and they would say, yes, yes, I'll come. I'll come. It is an honorable work to see beyond the rubble to the honor of being chosen to live in this city. See, the world is completely blind to the honor of being in the work of God. It's blind to the honor of being in the church. But God's people, God's elect, God's chosen, we see the honor. The world scorns God's standards. The world scorns God's ethics, His moral calling. But God's chosen, they see the honor of proclaiming truth to a world that's in darkness, even knowing that the word will be proclaimed upon deaf ears much of the time. 
Still, it's an honor. It's an honor to be able to proclaim that message. Because that's the means that God has ordained to bring men and women into His kingdom. And it comes at great price often. But it's an honor. As the world pursues satisfaction in materialism and it, the world does all that it can to escape from hardship, the God's people they are made to see that true satisfaction is found only when our greatest need, the greatest needs of our heart, the greatest needs of our life are met. And that greatest need being this, that I be reconciled with God. That's the need of my heart. That I be right with God. It's an honor. To know that our hearts have been satisfied in Him. And whatever we've lost, it doesn't compare with what we've gained. And the world doesn't see that. And apart from the grace of God, we wouldn't either. But it's an honorable work to be involved in the work of God's kingdom in Christ's church. So that we can stand alongside with those like Moses. And as the writer of Hebrews says, that we can consider the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. It's veiled, isn't it? It's a veiled glory. It's a veiled honor to, to Moses. Moses, look what you are losing. Look what you are sacrificing here. And the writer of Hebrews gives us the insight by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says he considered the reproach of Christ greater riches the treasures of Egypt, like the Apostle Paul, who can say, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Paul, look what you're losing. Look what you're laying aside. And Paul says, I count those things but rubbish. I've lost them. To be like such men as Jim Elliot, who gave us this well-known quote, that no man is a fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. It's honorable. Folks, that honor is sometimes veiled. But we need to maintain sight that to be called into God's kingdom, to be called into God's work, to be called into a part of Christ's church, that it is an honor. That you're the chosen... Not chosen by lot per se, but chosen by the grace of God. And there are much fewer in here today, not just in this place, but in other churches than there are out there. It's an honor. One of the... The things that I have to confess that I began, I pursued when I entered into my my uh, seminary studies. One of the things that I had considered and talked to Beth about was that I enjoyed teaching. I'd been teaching the Christian school for a number of years, and I thought, well, what I'd like to do is go ahead and get my MDiv and pastor, but I, at the same time, continue to work on my doctorate and and envision eventually getting into a teaching position, like in a Christian college. I have to admit, part of my reason for that was selfish. Because you don't deal with some of the messes and the pain and the heartache in a college that you do in a church. And I thought, man, I can go to college. Every four years, I got a whole new group. <laughs> Sometimes in church, you're stuck for a long time, aren't you? <laughs> and somewhere in that process, as I was, I was going through my study uh, at 
through seminary, just the Lord began to to teach me and to show me something of the wonder and the glory of the church. And I realized something. I realized something. Uh, teaching a Christian college wasn't the ideal. It's secondary. The place where God works is in His church. It's through His church. It's the church that Christ loved. And I began to love the church. And so the Lord just began to redirect my affections and my thoughts to the church that I want to be involved in the church. To enjoy pastoring with its pain, with its heartache, but with its joys of knowing that this is God's work. This is Christ's kingdom at its very core. Yes, He uses these other things. He uses... Uh, Christian colleges, he uses what we call parachurch organizations, those organizations that come along and assign the church and are to assist the church, but they do not replace the church. They cannot. The church is a unique living organism. May we love the church of Christ. As Christ loves his church. It's an honorable work, folks, to be in this work. But also, it's a hard work. Now, there's no sugarcoating of things. And we don't need to be mistaken, have any mistaken notions about work in God's kingdom. And the people of Nehemiah's day, they knew what it meant. They knew what it meant to go and to live in Jerusalem. Let me just read to you just the the comments of a few writers. One says this, It's not surprising that the people applauded those who volunteered to go. It says, For the transfer would mean, in many cases, the quitting of possessions, the loose loss of possessions, the exchange of riches for poverty, leaving a comfortable house for one half in ruins, giving up the life of a small landed proprietor for that of an artisan or a hired laborer. Quite a cost. And one man, uh, actually, it's James Montgomery Boyce, in his commentary says this Why had the city not been occupied? There were a number of reasons. For one thing, it had been without a wall for 142 years. This meant the city had been defenseless for that time, and as a result, it was, a dang- it was dangerous to live there. In case of an invasion, a family living in the country could run away and hide perhaps only losing their cattle and crops, but a person in the city was stuck. He was easy to attack, and the city, because it had few people, had few defenders. In Nehemiah's day, Jerusalem was an example of what we call urban blight. The city had been ravaged by invading armies, stripped of anything valuable more quickly and completely than an abandoned car in the ghetto. The houses as well as the walls were destroyed. Jerusalem was filled with rubble. And then during the century and a half of its non-occupation, grass and trees would have grown up in the yards, streets and passageways. It was a difficult place to live. It was an even more difficult place to make a living. And one of the other things which he doesn't mention, what would make it such a hard place to live, because it was the city of God and there is a spiritual warfare by Satan against that. It was a hated city. It was a hated people by the world. And to come in, which we've seen in the book of Nehemiah, the opposition from Tobiah and Sanballat just been raised up time after time because of the spiritualities behind it. 
It's a hated city. Who wants to run the risk of going and living in the city of Jerusalem knowing that you may be, you may receive the wrath of the enemies of God raised up and stirred up by Satan? I choose you to live there, not me. <laughs> and yet there were those who they volunteered. But it was a hard work. It is the holy city. And it is an honor. But life is hard. Day after day after day. And there's no quick relief in sight. Last year we had central air installed in our house and had installed in early June. In mid-May, Beth had gone to Middle Tennessee to, I think it was for Mother's Day last year, to visit with Quinny and Betty. And I was here and it was hot. <laughs> if you remember those days, but I do, it was very, very hot. And of course the house didn't have air conditioning. I'm almost spoiled people. But you know, I could kind of endure it thinking, ah, we've got this guy set up. He's coming to install this central heat in there. <laughs> the end is in sight. That's one thing. But what about when you see no relief in sight? A long road ahead of you. Yet these people are still willing to, to volunteer, to people, people who are willing to part with the comforts of the convenience of life because they see the honor. It's hard. And we will be honest about that. Christian experience, the Christian life experience, to be involved in the work of God's kingdom, to be involved in, in the work of Christ's church, it's going to be a work that is marked by hardship and marked by suffering. Jesus didn't have it easy, did He? It wasn't easy for Him. And He told those who would come after Him, those who would be His disciples, He said, you need to count the cost. This is what it's going to cost you. You need to consider, are you ready to take up a cross? Are you willing to take up as He modeled for them at the Last Supper? Are you willing to take up a towel and serve your brothers and sisters? This isn't going to be easy. Paul gave by matter by a course of exhortation to Timothy. He said, Timothy said, You suffer, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Christ. And even in his own experience, turn with me very quickly to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 23, as he speaks of, of those who have been critical of his ministry. This is, what he, this is something of a summary of what it's meant to be an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and following. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if in saying, I more so in far more labors, in far more imprisonments, beaten times without number. I've lost count, folks. I've lost count. How many times I've been beaten because of the cause of, for the cause of Christ. Often in danger of death, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times... Well, that's dealing with men, all these reckless men. Well, how about graciously? We have the providence of God that's going to take care. What's God doing? He's sending storms. I've been shipwrecked three times. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. 
been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, this is just the things kind of on the outside. There's a daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. There's nothing easy in there. It's a hard work. But, it's a glorious work. It's as hard as it is, I wouldn't be any other place. I wouldn't be outside the church of Christ. Because it is glorious. Because it is in the hardness of the work that we experience something that the outsider can't understand. Can't grasp it. We experience the sweetness of Christ fellowship. I will never leave you nor forsake you. And we experience that. We heard John Piper speaking Friday and Saturday and just one of the things he reminded us of, you know, you don't... You know, you look at these people who share their testimonies of their growth in grace, and he said, they always tell you that the times of greatest growth in their life were the times of hardship. Never when everything's right. When church is good, when family is good, and finances are good, everything is good. No, it's when you go through the crucible. It's when you go through the fire. It's when you go through the hard place and you, and you experience the fellowship with, with God and Christ in a way we, we haven't. So it's there. It's there that God deepens our walk and deepens our faith. The world can't grasp that. But it's also in the hard place and in the hardness that we experience His grace. The words to Paul. My grace is sufficient. Lord, I need something. Lord, I need deliverance from this. Lord, I need a change of venue. My grace is sufficient. Find satisfaction in my grace in the midst of where you are. If the change of venue is right, I'll do that when I choose to. But I will meet you. I will give strength to you. I will give grace to you to endure in the hard place. And you will be cast upon me in ways that you never knew you would have to be, nor thought you could be. That's grace. So that Paul rejoices in his weaknesses. I can rejoice that I don't have the capacity and the strength to meet this task that's before me because it thrust me upon the strength and the resources of Christ. It's a hard place. But it's glorious. What for us? I want us to keep sight as a church family here what we're doing. At Cornerstone Chapel. As long as we are true to our head, the Lord Jesus Christ, that our confession, that our confidence, that our rest as a church family can be this. Cornerstone Chapel is a holy work. Because God is in it. And if He's not in it, we don't want to be either. It's holy. Also, it's honorable. We could serve the Lord in other places. I know that. 
we have come here. We believe, I still believe, God wants to do a work here at Cornerstone Chapel. And it is an honor to be here, involved in this work. It's honorable because it's God's work. Folks, it's hard. It is. It's hard for all of us. It's hard for you in different ways than it is for me. But it's hard. We have struggles. Different types of struggles. But let the hardness cause us to see the glory. Let the hardness cause us to rest in Christ. Let us once again, though the honor may seem veiled. It may seem veiled. It seems somewhat veiled when you've got a sanctuary you can't even use. Doesn't it? It seems somewhat veiled when people leave. It seems somewhat veiled when it doesn't seem many are coming in. I'm not lose sight of this. It's an honor to be in the kingdom in the church of God. Does it have to be here at Cornerstone? No. But to the Lord just says, close it down. We're going to labor through the hardness. Because it's His work. It's holy. He is with us. And we will look to Him and say, Lord, we believe we're true to what You've called us to be. We're praying for a work that is disproportionate to who we are. We are longing for God to do something here from our very foundation that says to the world, to God be the glory. That's what we're longing for. We're not going wrong. With that as our heart. With that as our foundation. May God give us grace. To persevere. Let's pray. Heavenly Father. We. We marvel that you. Do anything. Through us. But somehow we believe. That you want to do much more through us. Than we would ever have imagined. So we come, Lord, and we just ask, do it. Do your work. And then in the process of of growing your church numerically, you're going to grow your saints spiritually. And you're going to grow us through hardship. So give us grace, O God, to remember what we've seen. Though the hardships come. It's a holy work, and it's an honorable work. Thanks be to God that we're a part of it. I pray your ministry of encouragement to the saints here. Varying degrees of struggle, various types of struggles and battles. But all your children who need comfort from you, we ask you to bring it. Comfort that's grounded in the truths of your word. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen.